gentlemen, welcome. Thank you very much indeed for coming along to our lunchtime uh, lecture, uh, kindly sponsored by uh, Ansel, which is, so, is associated with our Natalie and Athlete exhibition upstairs, small display, which is sponsored by Apos Therapy. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Vanessa Heggie, um, an old friend of mine. Uh, we overlapped at the University of Manchester. Um, she's since gone downhill rather and joined a small Fenland university in Cambridge, is it? Something like that. Um, I have no idea why you'd want to go over there. Um, where she's uh, teaching uh, the history and philosophy of science. Um, her research area is particularly interesting and was very obviously caught our attention when we were thinking about putting this program together because um, she's done some very interesting work on the history of sports medicine um, which came out in this fine Manchester University Press book. Her next book will be on the use of athletes as experimental objects, that is the history of um, exercise physiology. And then the book after that, if I've got it right, will be on the uh, history of scientific exploration in the 20th century. So she has a diverse portfolio of research interests, but it's um, going back to her roots as a historian of, of sports medicine that she'll be um, talking to us today. Um, I should say that the emergency exit is just here. Um, if you are, would like to make use of the speech-to-tech facility, can everyone see? Do you have the appropriate lines of sight? Um, in which case, I will hand over to Dr. Heggie. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, so... When I tell people that I work on the history of sports medicine, the single most common question I get asked is, so when did that start? Um, I know one of the really annoying habits that academics have is that they're unable to answer a simple question with a simple answer. And it's like, oh, but it's much more complicated than that. And then you get half an hour of answer. Um, so I've been trying to decide what my fast answer is going to be to this particular question. Um, I've narrowed it down to when does sports medicine start in Britain, because that's where my expertise lies. Um, and one answer is 2005, um, because that's when sport and exercise medicine becomes recognised as a specialty in the UK. Um, as I'm sure many of you know, being recognised as a specialty means um, that there's a sort of protection given to specialists in sports medicine, there's a recognised career path, there are recognised schemes of training and so on. But obviously in order to get all that together, there must have been people campaigning for sports medicine to be recognised as a specialty, there must have been people who could design curriculums, there must have been people who are practising some sort of sports, uh, some sort of medicine associated with sports. So obviously the specialty existed before official recognition. Um, so another answer for Britain would be 1952, um, and that's when a small group of doctors wrote to the major medical journals to announce they were setting up uh, a new association, the British Association of Sport and Medicine, um, which is now known as the British Association of Sport and Exercise Medicine, that's BASM. But that leaves us with the same problem we have uh, for specialty, which is in order to give those doctors the idea that this organisation was necessary and it was useful, they presumably also had to be working in some area of sports medicine earlier. So if I start tracking back through the first half of the century to try and find when this really began, um, the British Boxing Board of Control gets its first honorary medical officer in 1946. Um, the first book on sports injuries by Charles Hill that's called Injuries in Sport, that's published in 1931. Um, even before that, in the years around 1907, the sports newspaper, The Athletics News, carried a special column on medical problems in sport. 
and that was written by um, Dr. J. Kerr Lindsay, who was the honorary medical officer for Chelsea Football Club. So his job title obviously suggests that, at least in the professional sports, football and boxing, there were doctors involved regularly with team care and team training. And often when you look at the records, it's not just doctors, but it's also masseurs, physiotherapists, first aiders, and so on. In fact, by uh, 1870, there's actually a hospital that is specifically known for its treatment of sports injuries. Um, John Allison, who was um, a slightly alternative medical practitioner, he's not... Um, qualified as a doctor, but he specializes in um, physiotherapy, massage, physical treatments, um, founds Matlock House just outside Manchester using money he gets as a bequest from um, a millionaire from Bolton, uh, who he cures, I think, after the guy fell off his horse. I think it was for a sprained ankle. Um, and this is a hydrotherapy hospital. It offers, obviously, hydrotherapy, but also a range of other physical treatments. What you're seeing on the left-hand side there is um, rather terrifying electric heat therapy, um, apparently, this could get up to 500 degrees of dry heat and was used to treat sprains and strains. And the guy in the bed there is a footballer from Aston Villa, if I remember correctly. Um, so this is also offering um, sort of physical training, graduated therapy, medical gymnastics, um, massage, um, basic first aid treatment, poultices, careful regulation of diet, and an enforced ban on alcohol, which was apparently very crucial to heal up footballers. And the players that are coming to this hospital are being recommended to do so by their club doctors. So although it's alternative medicine, it does seem to have a certain level of respectability. By the time we get to the beginning of the 20th century, it's so well known for treating footballers international as well as national that it's colloquially referred to as the Footballers' Hospital in Manchester. So the history of modern sports medicine seems to start at the same time as the history of modern sport and that is at the end of the 19th century, the sort of Victorian era where we really see the beginning of competitive team games, um, the celebration of fixed rule athletics, the eventual restarting of the Olympic Games in 1896. As a historian, however, I have a real problem with that answer, and the reason is that it seems terribly anachronistic to me, because Alison didn't call himself a sports doctor, um, nobody said that what he was doing in this hospital was some sort of sports medicine. Nobody used that phrase in their books or in their pamphlets or in their newspaper articles. Although um, there were doctors, um, and there were sometimes surgeons rather than um, necessarily being physicians, who were the honorary medical officers of football clubs, they also had an awful lot of other sorts of honorary medical jobs. And these didn't necessarily require them to have any particular expertise or any specific skill sets. To earn a little extra money, they could also be the honorary medical officer to a prison or to a school or to um, a workhouse for the poor law. And these weren't necessarily thought of as being specialties, areas where you needed particular sets of skills in order to be able to do the job. And when you look at the uh, content of the medicine they're doing, the sort of practices that are going on, actually it looks like normal medicine. It doesn't look any different to the treatment that anybody else was getting. It's just medicine being applied to sportsmen or in a sporting context. It doesn't have the coherence academically, intellectually, or socially to really be considered a specialty. So by and large, they're being given the same advice as everybody else is. And the only real difference in treatment is the ability of the sports person to pay. Now, that's not because we don't have specialisms at all in the 19th century. Um, in fact, if you ask me when do specialisms in medicine start, I have a quick answer to that, and it is in the 19th century. Um, this is a time when... 
um, increasingly ambitious young medical men who find the marketplace is very crowded, it's very difficult to get recognition, are beginning to represent themselves as experts in particular little areas of medicine, founding new journals, founding new hospitals. Um, it's also where the scientific content of medical education is increasing to the point where it seems possible to actually just be an expert in a particular area rather than a generalist who understands the entire art. So although people seem to be doing sports medicine, and although there are plenty of specialties going on, the specialty of sports medicine itself does not seem to appear around about 1900. Um, and there's a very neat way to visualize the fact that this is the case. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever seen a Google engram before. Google have digitized millions of books. Um, and it enables you, therefore, to search for words and phrases in those books. And they have this very useful little program that shows the frequency with which those words are used over time. So, this is for ophthalmology, um, a specialty of the 19th century, and as you can see, probably just about make out, um, you see a little bit of activity in 1840, but for those of you who can't read it, it's becoming a specialty or becoming mentioned sort of around the middle of the 19th century and then up through the 20th century. And you see a very similar pattern for uh, gynecology. Again, that starts around about 1860, becomes very popular at the turn of the century, a bit of a dip during World War II, but even more obvious, neurology, which has a nice, clean, straight line of popularity through the 20th century. But when we turn to sports medicine, it's not the same pattern. It really only seems to pick up in 1950 and then up through the second half of the 20th century. So the frequency with which that phrase is used seemed to take us back to the 1950s. Obviously, these engrams have their weaknesses and their limitations. These are not... Um, all books, there are difficulties with the way they're digitized and so on. But having done my own historical survey work of books and journal articles and archive materials from the first half of the 20th century, this roughly correlates with what I've already found. Um, I found lots of people who were doing medical things in association with sports events or doing medical things to athletes, but there doesn't seem to be an idea that there's this specific thing called sports medicine that you could be a particular expert in. That doesn't seem to appear until maybe the 30s, the 40s, and then really flowers into the 1950s. So as a historian of sports medicine, I've actually got two tasks. Um, one is what I call the sort of empirical task. That's the who, the what, the when, and the how. So who was the first sports doctor? When was the first sports hospital built, etc. But I, secondly, I also think it's necessary for me to answer the why question which is why is it that we seem to see sports medicine as a specialty in 1950 and not in 1900 or in 1850? One thing worth considering when answering that question is how weird sports medicine actually is as a specialty when we stop, take a step back and think about it. It's a very um, baggy and huge entity. It includes everything from sort of orthopedics through to the psychology of winning to biophysics to nutritional advice. And its patient group is, is equally diverse. It's the elite physiology of Olympic athletes through to school children running races through to an obese bank manager who's just had her first heart attack and is being given a prescription of exercise to help her rehabilitate. It's no coincidence that sports medicine in the UK through most of the 20th century is dominated by general practitioners. I think that's probably because they're one of the few groups of medical practitioners who, you know, as a rule, generally encounter such a broad range of needs and such a broad range of patients. So there are several different ways in which we can define medical specialties. Um, firstly, the obvious one is um, localised pathology, that is damage in a particular area, specific tissue, organ, body parts. So dermatology, um, ear, nose and throat, as illustrated top left here, this is cardiology. 
Secondly, we have specialties that are based on particular skill in using a particular piece of technology. So radiology is the obvious one here, the interpretation of x-rays um, or use of the ophthalmoscope in the case of ophthalmology. Thirdly, we have diseases that fall into a particular family, so maybe medical genetics, contagious diseases, in this case oncology, cancer. Now, sports medicine and sports science uh, don't seem to obviously fit into any of those categories. We know it's all sorts of body systems, there's no particular technology involved, and you know, given that it's everything from anorexia to athlete's foot, it doesn't seem to fit neatly into a body of disease types. The fourth way to make a specialty is to argue that your patient group itself is the thing that's different or special or coherent. Um, we see that most commonly for the very young in paediatrics and for the very old in geriatrics. And my conclusion, having explored the early history of sports medicine, is this is what happens to make sports medicine a specialty. All of those people doing sport and medicine gradually build up an argument that the athlete themselves are different to the rest of us and therefore they need special treatment. So what I'm going to try and do for the rest of this talk is give you some of the empirical history about how this happened. Um, the who's and the what's and the when's. And I'm going to try and tell you two hopefully interesting but at least new stories that you've not heard before about sports medicine. But as well as trying to tell you these stories, I'm also going to try and show how they um, help support my argument that sometime in that interwar period, around about 1950, athletes became to be considered as special patient groups, and that's why we have a specialism of sports medicine, and that's why it kicks off in the 1950s. So I'm going to start with something that I think most closely relates to the specific specialism of this institution. I'm going to talk particularly about the treatment of strains and sprains and rehabilitation after um, broken bones. Um, it's a little bit about surgery, but it's a lot about sort of massage, physiotherapy, graduated rest and exercise and so on. And one of the most long-running controversies in this area is the balance between rest and exercise when it comes to um, healing injuries and particularly healing injuries, uh, serious bone and tissue injuries, particularly around joints. British surgeon John Hilton publishes this series of uh, lectures on uh, rest and pain between 1860 and 1863. They come out um, in the Lancet. They're quite seminal, very important works. They're not specifically about um, orthopedic injuries. Um, they're more about the use of pain as a diagnostic tool and rest as a general treatment. But he does very often use examples from um, uh, orthopedics, from broken bones, particularly the treatment of injuries close to joints and the problems you have with having to immobilise those to enable people to heal. Hilton is drawing on, perhaps surprisingly, some theories from physics to make some of his arguments here. Um, the laws of, the newly discovered laws of thermodynamics are often used by physiologists and by doctors in this time period to try and understand the human body. There's lots of metaphors about the human body as a furnace or an industrial machine. And the principle here is pretty simple. It's that you have a, a fixed store of energy in your body that you get from food, and you distribute that around your body as is needed. Now, if you're doing something exceptional, like healing up a serious injury, lots of your energy is going to go into that site, and therefore you've got less of it to spare the rest of your daily activities, and therefore you should rest. A similar sort of logic is used by Victorians to explain why you shouldn't swim immediately after a heavy meal, because you're using your energy for digestion, and therefore there's a risk of getting cramp if you try to go swimming. Um, it's also used to explain why women shouldn't go into higher education because we'll use the energy in our brains and therefore we won't be able to develop our wombs and we'll become infertile by studying too much. An alternative vision was published by a Frenchman 30 or so years later 
Lucas Champignet, who in 1889 published a very influential massage and mobilization in the treatment of fractures, which obviously has a very different vision to Hilton's. Um, it's particularly championed in the UK by a surgeon based here in London, um, William Bennett, who writes a series of articles in The Lancet defending this idea of mobilisation and movement to treat injuries and help in healing, and he condemns the incubus, as he called it, of the routine use of immobilisation for strains, um, sprains and fracture treatment. Uh, this is actually a quote from one of his articles he, where he's criticising immobilisation, because he says, the usual method of treating fracture by prolonged retention of the affected limb in splints, which allow practically no movement of the soft parts about the fracture, leads in a large percentage to the unsatisfactory results which follow upon fractures, especially in the vicinity of joints. Now, the British medical establishment are a little bit slower to take up this idea of rapid movement and um, exercise therapy. The British Medical Association form a fractures committee The reports in 1913, and its results are kind of ambiguous about the relative value of rest versus exercise. Um, World War I is what really changes this stance because this is a situation where orthopedic surgeons, the newly professionalized physiotherapists, um, first aiders and so on, are suddenly experiencing a much greater number of otherwise fit and active young men who have traumatic limb disorders and it becomes uh, their experience seems to show them that um, relatively rapid use of movement and exercise is useful not just for the healing of limbs, but also crucially for psychological healing um, of these young men. So by about 1920, what you find are that um, there are lots of references back to the bad old days when we used to use Hilton, and now we're in the good old days where, in fact, we use lots of movement. Um, this is a quote from um, one of the earliest sports doctors in Britain, Dr. R.S. Woods. Um, he's based in Cambridge. He... Um, competes in shot put for the British Olympic team in 24 and 28. And here he is in an autobiographical statement looking back on his earlier cricketing career. Uh, when I was 17, which I reckon to be about 1909, I'd hoped to be in the Dulwich 11 as well as the 15 for two seasons. But a sprained ankle one summer, water on the knee the next, blighted my cricketing ambitions thanks to the useless treatment of those days when Hilton's classic essays on rest and pain had set the clock back for many years to come. So that's around 1907, which is exactly the time that sort of William Bennett is writing to say, in fact, massage and mobilisation is the way forward. So perhaps it's worth thinking specifically about sport-related medicine. What were the people dealing with athletes doing to their patients at this time? Were they immobilising them or were they using exercise? And what's interesting is that when I dig around in the material, I find that physicians dealing with sports people seem to be early, um, uh, early adopters of the practice of movement massage and exercise therapy. They seem to be using it long before it became widespread from the 1920s onwards. Um, I mentioned that there was this series of articles in the Athletic News about medical treatment by Chelsea's um, honorary medical officer. And in every single one of his columns about any sort of orthopedic injury, any sort of sprain, he really emphasizes the use of exercise and condemns the use of immobilization. Uh, specifically, he says, in the case of footballers' knee, splints should never be used. For sprained ankles, prolonged rest is only mentioned in order to be condemned. Now, Care Lindsay is writing mostly for professional or elite competitive sports, so football, um, rugby, um, to a lesser extent cricket, but even total amateurs and hobby sports people were getting similar advice. Um, if you picked up a training manual from about the 1890s onwards and it had a section on first aid or medical treatment, 
it was quite likely that it would tell you to rest a little bit, but only moderately. But what you should really be doing is getting back into the sport. Graduated exercise would help you get back to full strength. So Dr. Woods was rather unlucky in perhaps going to a family practitioner or a school doctor rather than consulting someone who was particularly interested in sport. So doctors associated with sport were amongst the first to pick up the importance of exercise rather than rest. And secondly, what you also begin to see, and that's crucial for my argument, is that a lot of these doctors begin to argue that actually, when it comes to this sort of injury, athletes need a different kind of treatment to the rest of us. And for one thing, the situation of the professional club doctor is quite different in that their bodies has a, have an intrinsic value to their employers, the managers, the owners of the clubs. And as the Footballers Hospital suggests, there's quite a good market for anyone selling medical care, particularly for athletes, promising exceptional cures for your exceptional players. Um, the Athletic News quite often carried adverts for uh, medical treatment, everything from embrocations and rubs to surgeons themselves. I couldn't find a copy of this original advert, but this is from about 1904 from the Athletic News, where it's advertising the gifts of Mr. J. Ward, who is apparently England's greatest bloodless surgeon, the man with a gift that is outclassing medical skill in Manchester and Bolton, who can save insurance companies and football clubs thousands of pounds as he has the greatest percentage of absolute cures in England. And as the performance standards in sports crept up, so doctors attending to athletes began to point out that maybe they had higher requirements for rehabilitation than normal people. I mean, maybe a manual labourer could go back to work if they only recovered 90% of their function. Maybe a soldier could go back to the front line with 90% recovery. But an athlete, by 1920, they're looking at a fifth of a second difference if they're doing short-distance running. So they need 100%. That's what the doctors start to argue. To push on to the point where I'm really interested in it, into the 1950s, by 1953, Adolphe Abrahams, who is Britain's first ever sports doctor, first doctor to accompany the British Olympic team, and one of the founder members of BASM, actually specifically said, the athletes regard themselves as a privileged person in terms of their medical treatment. And that meant rapid, fully functional recovery from orthopedic injuries and the ability to continue training even while you're injured, a requirement that perhaps normal people don't have. So what might be good enough for most people by the 1950s was not good enough for sports people. They needed specialist treat, um, treatment and they needed specialists to provide that treatment. So the story of rest versus exercise is one where, usefully for me, the sports doctors quite specifically make my argument for me. They go through this very neat process where they explain that it's the same and then later on it becomes different for athletes. That makes things far too easy for me as a historian. Um, so my second example is going to be more difficult. And the reason it's more difficult is because it's a more controversial and a more secretive area of practice, and that is drugs and doping. So again, when I tell people I've written a book about sports medicine, if they're not asking me when it started, then they're asking me if it's about drugs and doping. In fact, it's not. Um, I'm much more interested in the routine daily practice of sports doctors, what it is that they really did, rather than the big dramatic stories that everyone else has already written about. But nonetheless, it shows that there's a sort of knee-jerk reaction, a knee-jerk association between doping and sports medicine. And specific bans on specific substances come into international sports in the 1960s. Um, which means they're being discussed and um, talked about by sports organisations in the immediate post-war period, particularly the 1950s. So we can see that that correlates with you know, the point at which I, I'm beginning to say I think sports medicine became a specialty, that point interwar period, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, now, maybe that's a total coincidence, but it means investigating the story of drugs and doping might be worthwhile. And there are two different hypotheses we can have. We can say, firstly... 
Athletes didn't take drugs before 1950, and then they started taking drugs in the 50s, and it became a problem, and therefore we introduced doping control. Or we can say athletes did take drugs prior to 1950, but for some other reason, it began to be a problem, for some political reason, social reason, medical reason, and that's why things changed in the 50s. And you don't have to spend very long in the archives to discover it's the second one that's the case. The athletes were definitely taking drugs for most of the time that there has been modern sport. The first specific controversy about doping in sport that I've come across is 1876. Um, I've seen some historians claim there were events in the 1860s, but I've not been able to track them down. So I'm going to go with this one that I'm certain about. So this is a pretty straightforward story. Um, this is about the famous American pedestrian E.P. Western, pedestrian being a long-distance walker. Um, he's the guy um, on the left-hand side looking very serious with his big moustache. Um, 1876, he comes to Britain in order to challenge local walkers to win some money in competitive races um, and sort of publicise the sport that he's so keen on. And in February 1876, he sets off to walk 115 miles in 24 hours round and round the Agricultural Hall in London. Um, he has a, uh, a British uh, competitor, companion, not this guy. This is flamboyant Irish walker O'Leary. I couldn't find a, a picture of the British guy who was much... Uh, um, much more mousy it would appear in his appearance. But Mr. Perkins accompanied him on this uh, attempt in the uh, agricultural hall. Um, Weston has a particular outfit of knickerbockers, um, leather leggings, and then these high ankle boots, whereas Mr. Perkins, the British racer, very unwisely, I think, wore very thin-soled shoes, which he obviously walked through until his feet were bloody and then had to put big ankle boots on instead. Um, and he had to drop out of the race after just 14 and a half hours. Weston walked the solid 24, came in a little under his goal at 109 and a half miles. And then there was the scandal. And the scandal was um, a physiologist, Ashburton Thompson, wrote to the British Medical Journal to say that during this competition, um, Weston had been chewing on coca leaves. Now, obviously, they're the source of cocaine. They're not as powerful a stimulant in the raw form, but they are still a stimulant. We're pretty used to drug scandals involving athletes, but it is probably unusual to see them breaking in the British Medical Journal. And, of course, the twist to this story is that Ashburton Thompson couldn't care less about the sporting effect of this drug. He was not worried that this is how Weston beat Perkins. That wasn't the problem. The problem was Weston was supposed to be being a guinea pig in a physiological experiment, and he was really worried that the results were going to be ruined by the fact that Weston had taken the drug. Weston had been... Um, persuaded to collect his urine during this race in order that it could be analysed at St Guy's by um, physiologist Dr um, Parvey. And as total luck would have it, the bucket in which his urine was being stored um, was carelessly handled by an attendant who threw slops into it. So that whole sample of urine had to be thrown out anyway. And so the cocoa had no effect on the results. Science was saved. Everyone was happy. I'm not going to go into detail about what, why they were doing this, although it's about protein metabolism. But my point is that this is a very famous athlete. He's being covered extensively by newspapers on this side of the pond and on the other side of the pond. He is openly taking, you know, basically a form of cocaine during the race itself, and nobody cared. There was no scandal about this. It wasn't a problem. Victorian athletes used a huge range of chemical and pharmacological products to help them while they were training or while they were taking part in sports. And most of the stuff they took was generally considered to be perfectly normal forms of medical treatment. These were largely drugs that were used for um, fatigue or pain. And so if an athlete felt fatigue or pain, they took one of these drugs, and that was a completely acceptable practice. Uh, we have this lovely advert here for Hall's Coca Wine, which obviously has a cocaine extract in it. You probably can't read it, but it says it's invaluable for treating flu and sleeplessness and mental fatigue. 
And there are also um, very commonly used tonics. This is Huxley's Nerviger, which almost certainly is, um, has a strychnine extract in it. Strychnine was quite widely used, um, particularly by athletes, some of whom seem to have actually injected it directly into their muscles, but many took it in an alcohol suspension instead. It's also quite difficult to tell where these sorts of pharmaceutical products sort of blur into what we might think of as nutritional supplements. Um, for example, the coca wine is a wine, and alcohol itself is used both sort of nutritionally and recreationally and also as a medical drug. And Weston, who after all is chewing coca leaves, didn't think they were very effective. He had a, a tonic that he much preferred and thought was much more useful in improving his performance, and that was this, Liebig's extract of meat, a high-protein drink that he used to take while he was racing. Um, we now know it as Oxo. Now, to us, it's obviously a food, but to him, it was a stimulant. It was a drug, a medication, something that helped him uh, with his sporting practice. Um, so I just want to make this point that it's, you know, the boundaries between nutrition and pharmacology, the boundaries between an acceptable drug and an unacceptable drug are completely different in this time period to what they are now. All that said, it is the British, again, a little-known fact, the British who bring in the first ever doping ban at an international event, and that's at the London Olympic Marathon in 1908. The organisers insert a line into the rules of the marathon that say no person shall take dope of any kind, and if you're caught taking it, you can be asked to drop out. And that sounds like the first modern doping ban, and it isn't. And the reason it isn't is because, firstly, they don't make any definition of what dope is. So we've no idea what it is that they meant by this. I mean, they may be. They meant Liebig's extract of meat, right? Except they don't mean that, because OXO were the official caterers for this event. They gave out OXO hot and cold, disgustingly, uh, for free to any runner who wanted it. So obviously, meat tonics are fine, but we've no idea whether strychnine tonic or cocaine tonic was going to be okay. And secondly... This isn't about cheating. And what makes that obvious is because this rule only applies to the marathon. Any other event of the Olympics in 1908, you can take what you like. It's quite clear that what inspired the ban in 1908 is actually worries about the health of the athletes themselves. Um, the previous Olympic marathon, 1904, in the USA had been a total shambles. Um, the eventual winner, well, the person who was declared a winner had in fact ridden some of the way in a car and then had to be disqualified. Various people dropped out because they were sick, and the eventual winner kind of staggered over the finish line in a very poor physical state, and it was known that he'd been given strychnine and egg white and brandy along the route by his handlers. And London were very, very keen not to see a mess like that again. Um, it's no coincidence that they also introduced the first ever medical screening for an Olympic event. If you wanted to take part in the marathon, you had to have a certificate or an examination to show that your heart was capable of getting you through the race itself. So my interpretation is that these rules are about protecting the health of the athletes themselves. The, the marathon was seen as a very grueling event, and there were worries that people would push themselves to their limits in this particularly competitive event, and then on top of that take something like alcohol or strychnine that might make things worse for them. So those drugs would be completely fine if you were sailing or boxing or doing something else, but just in this particular event, there was a bit of a risk. Best ban it, best be on the safe side, especially since the course has been designed to go past the royal box, and nobody wanted anyone passing out or dying in front of the royal family. So it's not the dope inherently wrong or it's inherently cheating, it's just that in the wrong circumstances it can be dangerous, possibly embarrassing. And that seems to be the attitude right through to World War II. Just to give you another example, Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club has a very good season from 1937 to 8. Um, their very eccentric coach, Frank Buckley, shown here with, I think these are Airedales, I'm not very good at dog identification, but I think they're his two Airedales, um, he announced to the press that he had arranged for dubious gland expert, Minzes, um, uh, Minzes uh, Sharp, to 
um, give injections of monkey glands to his players to revitalize their performance on the pitch. The use of these sorts of extracts is actually not that unusual in the 1930s. This is a boom time for research into hormones, um, extracts of ovaries as well as extracts of testicles. This is the decade in which progesterone and testosterone are isolated for the first time and identified. Um, it's quite possible that this is a bluff. Um, the accounts of the players afterwards seem quite self-contradictory. Some talk about injections, some talk about tablets. It may be that they weren't getting any hormones at all. But nonetheless, the consequences of their performance was that other football clubs said, right, they were going to start investigating hormone therapy. If I remember rightly, even a county cricket club said it was definitely going to consider it as a possibility if its players didn't uh, pick up their act. Um, there's a question asked in Parliament about whether or not this is okay. The British Medical Association set up a subcommittee to investigate um, the use of hormones in football. But crucially, they're not investigating whether or not it's fair. What they're investigating is the health consequences of taking this drug. What they're worried about is that players might be coerced into taking something that might be bad for them by coaches. That's what they're worried about. Is it fair to the players? Not, is it fair to the opposing team? This kind of jokey headline in the Daily Mirror, gland treatment has the same effect as love, says doctor, is about the fact that it might be cheaper and more efficient to get your football players to fall in love and have a rush of testosterone rather than invest in expensive injections. World War II gives everybody much more serious things to think about. By the time drugs become an issue again, then in the 1950s, everything has changed. Suddenly it is cheating, suddenly it is unfair, something it, suddenly it is something to really worry about. So you know, the question is why it is that things can change so very quickly. Firstly, the stakes become much, much higher. Sport's always been a site for national chess beating, um, but the 1936 games in Berlin are kind of nationalism on a very extraordinary and after World War II quite um, um, unpleasant and terrifying scale. Add to this the context that we have a Cold War going on and America and the Soviet bloc countries are quite explicitly using sport as a way to prove that their political systems can create healthy, young, fit, athletic bodies. So in this atmosphere, not only is the, uh, the quality of your performance crucial, but it's also the case that suspicions of other athletes, particularly from other countries, are very high. It's not just drugs that people are worried about. They also start to worry about gender fraud. But they also start to question things that we would think of as completely normal, like interval training. There are people saying, is interval training fair? Is it this crazy Finnish scheme that the Europeans are going to use and it's not reasonable? So things we would think of as being fine today in that heightened atmosphere of the 50s suddenly become quite controversial. Secondly, crucially, this is a time when it becomes possible to test for the substances themselves. Now, straightforwardly, if you can't test for the substance, it's actually quite difficult to ban it. You know, absent someone actually drinking out of their strychnine bottle on the route or collapsing, it's hard to prove that they've done it in the first place. Um, and it's actually a British team who developed the first tests for drugs and sports. Again, it's a, an event that's very rarely celebrated. Um, it's a team of people at University of London, I think Chelsea <coughs> College, um, who are actually working on the elimination of drugs, so studying the elimination of drugs in standard pharmaceutical trials. But when one of them, Professor Arnold Beckett, at a conference in the early 60s, someone mentions in passing that his work might be useful for sports. And so he offers his services, um, and the first trace test for amphetamines is actually done at... Um, the 1965 Tour of Britain, the, the milk race, the cycling race, and then a, a much bigger scheme is tested at 1966 at the Football World Cup. Again, a fact about a very famous event that very few people know. Nobody tested positive for amphetamines in 66, incidentally, although they wouldn't have been disqualified if they had because this was just um, a trial run for the Olympics. Thirdly, however, is my particular argument. Um, this is perhaps a more subtle and difficult point, but my 
My argument is that if we think that athletes aren't just like us but a bit better, a bit fitter, then it becomes possible for us to ask them to abide by different life rules. We can expect them to abstain from the normal daily routines of drug taking that we might otherwise take, um, have. It's reasonable to say you can't have this cough medicine, you can't take this pint of beer, you have to tell WADA where you are every minute of every day through the week before competition. They are not normal anymore. Their performances are not normal anymore. And therefore they don't have to abide by normal rules like you or I do. And I think this happened because the more doctors and physiologists worked with and studied athletes, the more, particularly elite athletes, the more they seem to find them to be different physiologically from the rest of us. Cardiology is a great site to find this. Um, in the 1920s, everybody knew that if you had a really enlarged heart, that was a symptom of heart disease. It's fairly straightforward. And yet, here are these elite endurance walkers who have these grossly enlarged hearts and yet seem to be really fit and healthy. How are we going to explain that? Or say you go to a recruiting station in 1940 to sign up for the army. If your resting pulse rate is 50 beats per minute, you are not, you're going to be rejected because that's clearly a symptom of heart disease. Except here are these endurance cyclists who have resting pulse rates regularly of 50, 45 beats per minute. It's not normal for us, but it seems to be normal for them. And that's where the arguments begin, that this is a different special patient group, and it needs to be specially understood so you don't reject them for no reason. And that's the moment, I think, at which you can have sports medicine. It starts in the interval period, it flowers in the 1950s. And that answer really matters, because if the answer to the question, when did sports medicine start, is around about the 1950s, suddenly Britain becomes a pioneer. Previously, it had been lagging behind everybody else. But for this answer, it becomes more important. Because there are lots of organisations and institutions that have formed in the first half of the 20th century for the study of medicine relating to exercise. Um, the French Society for the Medicine and Sport is 1921. Their associated journal, which is the, the Medical Review of Physical Education and Sport, is 1922. Uh, the Germans are often considered to be the first. They have the first uh, sports medicine congress in 1912, the first sports medicine college in 1920, which looks like they're really pressing ahead. But German specialists or the people working in these sites argued that sports medicine should not be considered a specialty. To quote one of them, the physiology of sportive functioning could not be divorced from human physiology as a whole. That is, this is about the normal function of the human body doing exercise. It's not a special thing. So the focus on physical education is the clue here. This is not about sports medicine of special or elite athletes. This is about national fitness. It's about physical culture. It's about um, national strength, a healthy workforce for industry, and a healthy a population from which you can recruit your army. And this is Empire Day physical drill display by um, a particular lads brigade. Again, this idea, I like this picture because I think it shows this connection between routinized physical education, particularly for young men and schoolboys. Um, and possibly uh, military fitness and military recruitment. So the organisations that are interested in this sort of activity are also studying elite athletes. It's just not the main focus of what they're doing. The first international umbrella organisation, the Association Internationale Medico-Sportive, AIMS, is founded in 1928 at the Winter Olympics. Um, it becomes the Fédération uh, Internationale de Médecins Sportive, uh, FIMS, in 1934. Uh, that's its current name. And it organises congresses to uh, get together and talk around about the same time as the Olympics, but also sometimes to do scientific studies there. This is the massive team who went out in 1928 to conduct experiments on athletes. Um, you notice at the bottom, well, you probably can't read it, but it refers to the people who conducted the sport physiological examination. It's still not using the word or the phrase sports medicine in 1928. 
Um, and up in the top left, that's Professor Boytendick, who is the president, the first president of FIMS, who's observing a cardiological examination of a middle distance runner. And as these groups studied these elite athletes, they did begin to realize that they were different. And that meant that after the shock of World War II, they were in a position to reconfigure and recreate sports medicine that was going to be a sports medicine for the elite, not for um, the masses. And one of the first of those organizations is BASM in 1952. The German Democratic Republic doesn't get its sports medicine organization until 53. The Americans don't get the College of Sports Medicine until 54. The Australians wait another decade. They don't get theirs till 63. The Canadians don't get it till 65. And even then, it's sports science. They don't get sports medicine till 1970, and so on and so forth. In that list, Britain comes first. And when I tell people this, they're often surprised because we so strongly associate British sports with amateurism and play up and play the game. Um, we forget how much science and technology um, goes into them, how very competitive and, in some cases, world-leading they actually were. It is quite true to say that 1950s sports medicine compared to today is grossly underfunded and grossly underdeveloped and, in many cases, wrong about a whole bunch of things. But if you compare British sports medicine in 1950 fairly, which is to earlier British sports medicine or to French sports medicine in the 1950s, it's actually doing okay. And in some cases, it's doing better than okay. Luckily for my argument, the records of BASM also back this up. BASM is a small organization when it starts, around about 100 members in the 50s, booms into the 1960s, becomes very popular, and starts doing provincial um, meetings and uh, uh, social events to try and expand the population out from London. And their first ever provincial meeting is in Loughborough in 1961, and the title of the meeting is Are Athletes Different? And every paper that is given there, from psychology through to physiology, says, yes, athletes are different. They are a special patient group. The first ever book with the title, uh, with the uh, phrase sports medicine in the title is by um, John Williams, um, another pioneering British sports uh, doctor. He publishes it in 63, and near the beginning of the book he makes this lovely statement that I came across, I have to say, after I've done a lot of my research, but very neatly sums up exactly what I've been trying to argue. The intensity and diversity of modern competitive sport, the increased knowledge and experience of physical educationists, have resulted in the emergence from the general mass of the population of a new type of person, the trained athlete. Whether amateur or professional, he is as different physiologically and psychologically from the man on the street as is the chronic invalid. And therefore, you need specialists to treat this specialist body. We can't take Williams's word for it. He has a vested interest. You know, he wants his hobby activity to be recognized as a proper medical specialty. But luckily, we have one other place to turn to, and I will finish up with that. Um, and that is governmental organizational recognition, particularly the Sports Council. Now, the Sports Council is founded in 1965 on the recommendation of the Wolfenden Committee on Sport. And the Wolfenden Committee was supposed to look into the community and social effects of sport. So particularly looked at school sports, lay exercise, and so on. And it recommends that a sports council is founded to be like the art council. That is to take tax money and put it out into worthwhile schemes in the community. Despite this emphasis, this is not what the sports council funded when it came to science and to medicine. In the first five years of its activity, it gives out £35,000 to sports medicine, which is about one in every five pounds um, of the entire sports council budget goes to sports science and medicine. And of that £35,000, 90% goes either to basic physiological studies or the care and treatment of elite and professional athletes, Olympians and professional boxers in particular. It is not about school sports, lay exercise, casual exercise. It is about elite sports medicine. Now that changes. The specialty that we have today is not sports medicine. 
it's sport and exercise medicine. So the exercise that kind of gets lost after World War II has to be packed back into the specialty, mostly during the 1980s. Obviously, I don't have time to talk through that with you, but the gist of it is, in order to make this new specialty um, of interest to the NHS and to the Ministry of Health and of Sport, um, particularly in times when public services are being cut in the 1980s and you have to make a very strong argument for value of your activities, that's when sports doctors began to um, reclaim exercise as part of their remit, particularly, too, in a period of increasingly sedentary lives, increasing obesity, increasing diseases of civilization like heart disease, when it seemed like experts in health and exercise would be particularly useful to the NHS. So basically, I've taken an hour, 45 minutes, to answer a very, very simple question. And that was, when did sports medicine start? And so now my answer is, you can see bits and pieces of it coming together at the end of the 19th century. It begins to consolidate in the interwar period, and it reaches its mature form in 1950. And then it's substantially reinterpreted at the end of the 21st, uh, 20th century. So thank you for patiently waiting for a simple answer. Thank you very much indeed for packing so much in and illustrating it so nicely. I believe you have time to take a yes. couple of questions. Uh, open up the floor, please. This, what, what do you mean by interval training? The mm -hmm. uh, question is, what do you mean by interval training? Oh, I mean, um, uh, it's Zartepec and the other Finnish guy whose name I can't necessarily remember who are recommending, a Bannister is using this, I think, to get his mile in, but where you do very fast, very brief training and um, you run for a brief period very intensely, and then you sort of jog for a period. So it's, it's the use of very hard cardiovascular exercise and then lighter periods in between at very, very short intervals. There's a range of different ways in which that's being done in the 40s and 50s, but that's the premise. Is that? Yeah, that's, that's how most modern athletes yeah. were trained, though. Yes, it is. It becomes much more popular. When it's first introduced, there are some discussions that this is not the yeah. right way of going about things, and there's somehow some sort of dubious cheating going on. Thank you very much. I think Hartleck and... Yeah, but Zartepec yeah. is the guy who... Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yes, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll recapitulate the question for the sake of the recording. Yes, would um, people engage in something like the Ascent of Everest or other uh, examples of, of extreme challenges? Would they be a matter for, for this expertise? Questions about the relationship between uh, challenges and mountaineering, another of your areas of expertise, yeah, yeah. and uh, British sports medicine. Yeah, I mean. That's what I was hoping would be the case when I tried to segue from a project on the history of sports medicine to a extreme physiology. And <coughs> my instinct is to say no. They are quite discrete fields of research. Um, there's a certain level of general fitness about mountaineering and so on, but there seems to be there doesn't seem to be the same sort of people are always trying to find the perfect body type for the mountaineer, and there are lots of different prejudices about that it has to be short people or tall people or that stocky people or thin people do better, and there are lots of sort of um, national prejudices about what sort of body type is right for it. But the studies seem to show that actually a lot of it is psychological or genetic or about your, your basic metabolism, and that that's very hard to predict just by looking at you, and that there seem to be a variety of different ways in which people can reach the, the top of mountains. And that the physiological study of people who do exceptionally well, like um, Reinhold Messner, and people like that, it's very hard to find a particular thing about them that enables them to do the activity, whereas it's sometimes quite easy to find the genetic or the physiological quirk that makes someone a very good 100-meter runner or a very good high jumper. That Mountaineering seems to be a much more holistic sort of activity that isn't easy to boil down in that way, and so there doesn't seem to be that special patient group for that sort of extreme physiology that there is for 
for competitive sports physiology. The time element is lacking. You know, they haven't got the time pressure. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, some of the more elite climbers definitely are training, I, well, I would say as hard as elite level athletes. I mean, they are doing it essentially as a job, even if their job is then acting as a guide for other people. Um, but it is a different, it is a sort of activity where it seems to be that the only way to train for it is to do it. And that's not necessarily the case for athletics and other sports. All right, Definitely, definitely is. I mean, there's, there are certainly people who do very badly at altitude, and you can identify them genetically. I'm not sure whether there's conclusively the one right way to be a successful mountaineer. I don't think they've quite boiled it down to that. There are, there are clearly people who do have a genetic advantage, um, and it isn't just about hemoglobin. There's a whole sort of complicated system. I think mitochondrial DNA is the new hot topic for that sort of thing. But there's, <laughs> but there, I mean, there's also the connection there between the, the, the use of um, altitude training by athletes, of course. And it turns out that some athletes do very well with altitude training, and actually, for some of them, it makes their performances worse. And that's quite a, that came as a bit of a surprise, and it's not always that obvious who's going to benefit or not benefit from it. And a great deal of it seems to be actually about the psychology of it, about whether you think it's going to work for you or whether it's not. And that's, there was a lot of research done in the late 60s because of um, the Mexico City Olympics, which of course are at sort of mid-altitude. And a lot of people were very concerned about the effects that was going to have on the athletes. And it, it, the, effect, the psychosomatic effect of being at altitude seemed to, to, to really, really concern them. There was definitely by that point the idea that athletes were quite fragile objects and that if you scared them about something, they would definitely see a decline in their performance. In Australasia, Yeah, um, so about the differences then between um, the, the sort of very well-developed American systems of sports medicine and then what's going on in Britain and whether or not we're better at perhaps preventative. And my instinct is to say yes. I mean, my, my expertise in the history goes up till 2005 when it gets specialised. And after that, I can't necessarily promise anything. But what I find really interesting is that the American system, they don't have a specialty of sports medicine. What they have is subspecialties. So you do orthopaedics and then you'd have the subspecialty of sports medicine in that. Or paediatrics and have the subspecialty of sports medicine in that. Whereas in Britain, it seems to have been this much more GP-led and based system. And they had a much, because of the NHS, they had a much stronger case to make for the value of their activity to everybody, not just to people who could afford to go, you know, strain their arm playing golf in the 80s and could go to a private clinic. You also had to make the case for everybody else. And I think that does mean that our sports medicine is, in its nature, a slightly different object that does have this concern about public health, preventative care, remedial exercise, in a way that you don't necessarily get in much more privatised healthcare systems. I mean, I think it is to do with the healthcare system rather than necessarily the scientists. I think it's the superstructure of the politics that makes it slightly different um, across the Atlantic. Can I ask you a question? I'm interested, you, talk about, you talked about the Olympics a bit in your talk, mm-hmm. and you talk about it a lot in the book. Um, it is a major event, it's mm-hmm. what you're about to experience. Um, but it's only one of the large sporting mm-hmm. events. Is there a disproportionate 
amount of attention paid to the Olympics in terms of the development of sports medicine? How closely are they related? Okay. If, I mean, if, if there is a disproportionate amount of attention paid to it, then it's probably my fault since I'm the only person who's really writing about it. Um, yes, there probably is, actually. Um, the, there's a really crucial event, and this is the 60s, the altitude study, because that is the really big money that comes from the Sports Council. Before the Sports Council is even probably put together, it's giving out a £5,000 grant for people to go out and study the effect of the altitude. And that has, that has a really formative effect on sports medicine in Britain, or the structures of it, I, I think. Um, around about that time period. And there's definitely a periodicity about the sports medicine congresses that are timed to coincide with the Olympic Games. So it has that sort of structure and format and organisation, that a superstructure that helps, I think, people to meet and get together at congresses. In terms of the actual scientific work that's done at the Olympic Games, no, not really. There's big stuff. The, 20, the 28 Games is really important for this idea that athletes' hearts are different. That's really quite a crucial event. And there are other sort of bits and pieces. Of, like, I think it's 32 and 36 are really important for the development of public health treatments for athletes' foot. So you can find these little bits and pieces of your little things that come together. But no, it's, um, I think things like the Commonwealth Games could probably have performed the same sort of function. Some of the heart studies and so on are done then at the Commonwealth Games. Some of the altitude work is done at the Pan American Games that are held at altitude. So it's, it's, it's part of another structure. But the Olympic Games have such... They carry such weight and such freight, and it's sometimes easier to get funding to go and do those activities. I think they're disproportionately influential for that reason, rather than necessarily because they provide a particularly special site in which you can do this sort of research. That's okay. And, and will, will the 2012 Games keep you busy? <laughs> yeah, I think they will. I'm actually going to a couple of events. I was one of the few lucky people to manage to get tickets, so I'm looking forward to that anyway. Well, unless there are any further questions... Um, I'd like to round up with a couple of thanks and uh, points of order, if I may. You've got an evaluation sheet on your chair. We take great stock about them and uh, read every single one, so do please take a moment. You should also have, if not with you, but you can get one of your way out, the a copy of our events brochure. The next event, Hayley will remind me... got a hands-on event on the 18th of August. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Apos Therapy and Ansel. I'd like to thank Haley and our events team. But finally, I'd like to thank Don Kekki for coming all this way from Cambridge to give us this fascinating talk today. Thank you very much. Thank you.